Welcome to Minerva's Creative Conversations. I am your host, Minerva Salas, and I wanted to personally welcome and thank you for joining us today. We're glad you're here because this podcast is created for you. It is a podcast where I dig deeper into the personal journeys and professional careers of influential, successful women and how their stories can inspire others to succeed. Today, my special guest is Elisa Charters, president of Latina Surge, a national nonprofit advocacy organization that she co-founded in 2015. Elisa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Minerva. It is a pleasure to be here on your show today. Lisa, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, And Lisa, you are the president of Latina Surge. Tell us about your nonprofit organization and how it helps women surge. I've been very fortunate in the last 20 plus years to work with uh, Latinas, BIPOC women, women in the workforce, uh, and About six years ago, I wound up talking about the advocacy work that I did in community uh, and a lot with government and uh, really trying to advocate for women on boards in government. And basically, I had this conversation with two cousins, uh, Annie and Lisa Salas, And they, one is a retired executive from Colgate-Palmolive. She uh, was doing finance uh, across the globe. And Annie was the producer of MTV Latino years ago when it started in Miami. So when I was explaining all of this advocacy work that I was doing on the government side and the community side, they said, why aren't you doing this in corporate America? You know, you, you could you know, really have an impact there with women. And women are still really struggling uh, in the workforce. So I said, well, it's absolutely something that's po- possible. Uh, I could just basically mimic the programs that we do in, in our community space and, and we can do it in the corporate space. And they said, we want to do it with you. And that's when Latina Surge started. And the whole background on why it's Latina Surge. It's just a strange name. Why Surge? It's because we really wanted to focus on empowering women with their disposable income to make a difference. So instead of waiting for others to empower us, to help pull us up, we would teach women how to self-empower with their disposable income, making purchasing decisions and by rewarding companies for their best in class performance in diversity, equity, and inclusion. So that was really the foundation of Latina Surge. And uh, we've we've been putting our mission out there. We started as a grassroots organization and we then found out about the Lean In program, which is a virtual platform, uh, a global platform that supports women. And we, were introduced to it. We put our mission on that pl- platform and something very magical started happening. Latinas from across the country started joining. And the our platform there, uh, it was uh, called the Lean In Latina Surge Circle, started growing. And on average, there's probably two to 10 leaders within each circle. 
And ours grew to 25, then it grew to 50, then it grew to 100, then it grew to 200. And it really captured the interest of the lean-in organization. So we got, we got a lot of support from that, that organization. And uh, they just wanted to understand what, what we were doing. And they really loved the, the, the surge to reward concept. So long story short, when that happened, there were 33,000 circles, meaning 33,000 women leaders globally in that lean-in program. There are now over 50,000 circles globally. So as Lean In has grown, so has our Lean In Latina Surge Network. In the meanwhile, we, you know, we focus on all kinds of initiatives to empower women in all different spaces. Uh, again, you know, we started with the, the focus on corporate, but um, we, we are now working with entrepreneurs, we're working with uh, community members, other community women's leadership groups, and uh, the, the, the impact just continues to resonate. It sounds incredible. And that you started this in 2015, such a yeah. pioneer, you know, to do this type of work. Uh, well, let me ask you, because you have many chapters throughout the United States. We started as this grassroots organization thinking, well, you know, we'll structure ourselves just like any other membership organization. But when we, when we morphed into this grassroots to virtual, it just really started growing so rapidly. And right. we could not necessarily manage the growth as a, as a grassroots organization. So we decided to pivot and, right. and we just said, you know what, we, instead of like structuring this as a membership, we're just going to structure this as a reach, like who's interested, who attends our events, whether they're virtual, in person, um, you know, whether they're guest speakers and they, they draw a crowd, whether we partner with other uh, women's organizations, other ally organizations, we're just going to continue to build the reach because in reality, we're a nonprofit. And at the end of the day, we're not doing this for, um, for, you know, an ROI in terms of, you know, profit, we're nonprofit. And the idea is to really get this messaging out there to support as many women as possible. So um, to your question, we have expanded. We started in Montclair, New Jersey, and uh, our reach expanded through the county, then through the state of New Jersey. Uh, we now have a chapter in New York uh, that that happened pretty, pretty quickly. It was almost simultaneous because there are so many women in our region that work in both New York and New Jersey. We're very close uh, in proximity um, to New York right. City. And, uh, and then we started a chapter in Miami. And now there are women in Atlanta that like to start a chapter as well. But our reach really is across the nation and actually now globally because we're partnering with women in Argentina as we speak. This is fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. You know, congratulations to you on this. Thank this you. Thank you so much. I mean, it, it, I really, this is not the power of me. This is the power of we. So exactly. uh, all of this could only happen with the dedication and volunteerism of, of these extremely uh, bright and hardworking uh, women, not just Latinas, but BIPOC women, um, multicultural women, uh, and, and allies, allies that have supported us each step of the way. And speaking of multicultural women, how does Latina Surge support women who come from different cultures and who want to invest in the careers? Like what specifically 
give us some ideas, you know, for our audience, what exactly does Latina Surge do to support these women? Well, when we say multicultural women, you know, mm-hmm. when we define who a Latina is or a Latinx woman is, she is inherently multicultural. She is multiracial. Uh, she could have a, a heritage coming from so many different places from around the world. I mean, when I think about the leaders uh, over the last years uh, at Latina Surge, uh, some are, are white Peruvians, some are half Indian, half Puerto Rican, uh, some are African-American and half Dominican. Um, there's just, there's just so, some are, are Latina and, and, and also Asian. Like there are so many different, um, cultures at the table when, you know, we, we talk about Latinas. Uh, and then obviously when we partner with other organizations, we partner with a multitude of, of different organizations, whether they're Native American women or um, African-American women, uh, women from the Caribbean, um, obviously Asian women coming from all different Asian backgrounds. Like I just said, some are from India, some are from Korea. We're, we're doing a, a, a cannabis uh, event now and uh, we're partnering with... Um, with a round table of Asian women in cannabis. So the, the, the opportunities to draw and, and include and ensure that all of these multicultural women belong, mm-hmm. uh, embracing their differences is something that's uh, inherent in, in the, the culture of Latina Surge nonprofit. Well, it's interesting you say, um you know, multicultural, multi-race, because Latino is not a race. And I think a lot of people, you know, they try to put us in a group, but we are comprised of different races, ethnicities, religions. So we are multicultural. And when we can address that, we can include them. Because a lot of times you see, you know, Latinos who may be white Latinos, and then you have the Afro-Latinos. So what I love about this organization that you are embracing all of these cultures. So everyone feels like they're part of the table. And that's very important, especially in the Latino culture. Yes. And I I would add one step beyond that is that Mm -hmm. Latina Surge is fully inclusive. While the name is Latina, uh, referring to a female uh, Latinx individual uh, or Hispanic individual, we are a fully inclusive organization. We have had white males on our board. We have had black males on our board. We've, we've had um, members of the LGBTQ community, uh, mm-hmm. you know, be major partners of ours. We, we are fully inclusive. Um, the, the idea of Latina Surge is really to support um, parity. And at this moment in time, and it's, it's really, uh, it's mind boggling at this point, you know, as we approach 2022, that there are so many disparities uh, that have been further amplified by the pandemic, um, but they were already uh, existing disparities over the last couple of decades. Um, but there's still, you know, a 45% differential in pay for Latinas. So- right. You know, when we, we, you say like categorizing people, 
I think a lot of times this gets done because of census, because of the census data and, and how we wanna understand how certain communities are being affected. And, and that's why we have to sort of use this terminology to define us because we wanna understand the numbers better and how we're affected. But in reality, uh, Latina Surge is an organization that is really seeking parity for individuals. Um, and those individuals that are the least represented, uh, that we make sure that we are bringing awareness to them so that they can self-empower, not just information about them um, for others to understand, but for, for those individuals themselves to understand what the dynamics are that affect them and how they can self-empower to a higher place, mobilize to a higher level of uh, socioeconomic status or education um, or, or just like their personal goals. So that's, that's what Latina Search stands for. Wow, it's amazing, absolutely amazing. Now, speaking of diversity and inclusion, how did your passion to support this important cause come from? That's just really interesting. It's, you know, I guess it stems a lot from my, my years growing up as, as a young child. Uh, I was in a, an extremely multicultural community. I, I, I was born and raised in Passaic, New Jersey. Uh, and when I tell you everyone on my block was from every place around the world. It was like a block of immigrants. Um, we had, you know, families from Israel. We had families from Poland, from Germany, from Russia, from the Ukraine, um, from Italy. Uh, you name it, we had everyone on our block. It was one big melting pot and it was such a great experience. What was very interesting in retrospect is that nobody understood that, um, what a Peruvian was. My mother is Peruvian. Mm -hmm. My father is of Italian descent, but my grandfather and great-grandfather are, were from, from Argentina, born and raised in Argentina. So, but, but I affiliated with, or really recognized and associated myself with my Peruvian culture because my mother brought me to Peru annually. I would spend three months out of the year in Peru. That's what we did. Instead of going to camp, we went to Peru to visit mm -hmm. family and, 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 and just yeah. be immersed with our family there. Um, but, but, but the differences I would, I, I experienced started then because people would right away associate me with being um, Puerto Rican because that's all they knew. Um, right. At that time, there were just like, if you were Hispanic, you were Puerto Rican. There was nothing else. Um, or Dominican, or Dominican. Not now even that. No, yeah. but, but, but back then in my community, it was only Puerto Rican. Wow. Um, yeah, there really wasn't, because I mean, we're talking about, you know, a good 40 years ago. Uh, 45 years ago. Right. So, um, so, so, you know, just my own identity, like, how do I ex explain who I am? I knew what my culture was. I know, I knew what it represented because I, as a young person was, you know, immersed in this proving culture. And then I would come back and people would say, well, you're Puerto Rican. And, and I wasn't Puerto Rican. I didn't even really know what it would be to be Puerto Rican at that point. Right. So, um, so, so, 
you know, I guess I'm just saying that I, I had this like appreciation of differences early on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, I went to, I went to an all girls Catholic school in uh, Montclair, New Jersey, which then was a very rich white community. It's very diverse now, but, but back then it was, it was predominantly very Anglo, which wasn't a problem these were my best friends, but even at school, there was, I would say it was probably 85% white, um, the remaining balance, 15% black. And then there was me, <laughs> there were, there were no Hispanics in the school. So, so again, you know, there was this like disparity and while everyone treated me very well, um, I, I noticed a difference. And I, I also, there was a huge socioeconomic difference for me as well that I had to navigate, um, you know, internally. Mm -hmm. And it was all a great learning experience. Many with Love showcases totally handcrafted products that are unique and made of natural materials with delightful designs that can beautifully complement a daytime or evening wardrobe for a special occasion. The Mini with Love handmade handbags are a must-have accessory for a professional, well-dressed woman who wants to feel special and unique. To learn more about these handmade products, visit miniwithlove.com. Back to your question, it wasn't until I got to the workforce that I realized, wow, you know, even in university, I just felt like everything was okay. I was managing. I didn't really... I didn't feel any kind of disparities against me. I didn't feel any oppressions against me in reality. I, I felt very included. Um, I went to New Jersey Institute of Technology. Um, I, I had this opportunity to be the first to go to college in my family. It was very exciting. They gave me a lot of support. It was, it was just, it really has brought me to where I am today professionally. That was, that was a major stepping stone. Um, but again, after that experience in college, that's when I went into the workforce, that's where I started seeing the disparities. When you say disparities, um, did you experience any implicit biases in your yes. career? Yeah, definitely, definitely. And while I, I, I loved where I worked in the different, different places that I worked and I loved those experiences, um, sometimes I had no idea that these, these biases were happening against me. And I was just kind of going through the motions thinking, you know, sometimes not even realizing it, uh, not realizing that someone doing the same job that I was doing was getting paid, like almost double what I was getting paid. Um, or, or where I, you know, I would get a promotion. There was one point where I got a two level promotion and I was told, you don't want to take that two-level promotion up front. You want to space it out because uh, you'll be able to get two bumps. But in reality, like, why wouldn't I have just taken the, the promotion to that higher level? Because being at that higher level would just have positioned me for another um, opportunity that I could apply for that was even at a higher level. So, like, you know, there were, there were a lot, of, there was guidance that, I think was just inappropriate. There's also, you know, these opportunities to be on projects, um, you know, I, and I'm, I'm talking beyond um, 
office politics. You know, office politics happens everywhere, right? But um, but there were there were certain circumstances where, you know, it was either a case of nepotism or um, you know, who's who's buddies with whom and you know, who got to work on this project. So if I didn't have that access to those projects, then then I wasn't going to be considered. So I think that it was just um, something that was always happening. I don't know if I was always aware of it. A lot of times when it was happening, I thought it was something more personal. It was like the way I was presenting myself. It was something wrong that I was doing. I wasn't good enough. I wasn't, you know, and that really... I, I, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger at the end of the day. You know, listening to all of that you're doing, you have 20 plus years of leadership experience and strategic planning for corporate social responsibility. And you do consultation services for public-private partnerships and expertise contracts in procurement. So which area of corporate social responsibility are you concentrating most of your efforts on? Well, I would say like early on in my career, it was environmental services. Uh, it was it was all about environmental services, and at, you know, at the port at the port authority, early on in my career, it was about you know proactively doing pollution prevention audits, um, making sure that there was communications on um, different different processes uh, in in operations, so that we could minimize our, you know, at the time it wasn't necessarily the carbon footprint, but it was really like our waste footprint. Um, so that was a level of corporate social responsibility and, and, and bringing about the awareness of that responsibility. Um, so I would say, you know, as I got more involved with um, the employee resource groups, uh, the, at the time I became the, uh, the president of the, um, it was the Port Authority Hispanic Society. And, and just, you, you have to, you know, at some point, these groups obviously embrace culture. We're together celebrating our culture or our multicultural interests together as Latinos, or maybe with other groups like the Black Network or the Asian Network um, the LGBTQ network, but at some point it gets more serious because you really want to address what you know is happening, which is these limited, the, the limiting of opportunities. Um, so, and then the disparities, like where are all the Latinos in the company? You know, the percentages are there, but where do those percentages fall? Are they all administrative? Are they in middle management? Are they in executive Back management? In. Are they in a C-suite? So at, at some point, we, we really did have to have the serious conversation with the C-suite uh, at the Port Authority. And at that time, you know, there were not like diversity councils. These things did not exist. Um, it really was a champion there was a chief administrative officer who really cared about this and said, I want you to present to all of the C-suite leaders in the company about what your thoughts are on what's happening in the, in the agency. And that was, that was, you know, that was a scary thing to do. It was, it was, it was, it was, you know, I was kind of thrown into a leadership um, conundrum, 
of, you know, you want to progress in your own um, path towards leadership at the same rate, you're really sticking your neck out and you can, you can nullify any, any chances of advancement. If you say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing. Um, but I, I had to have, I had to have faith that doing the right thing was the right answer. And, and, and thankfully I wasn't alone. Um, our whole pause, um, it was called pause at the time. Our whole pause leadership team was, was very involved. The, the human resources gave us data. We requested the data to see the differentials um, in representation across all the different levels in the agency. And we sat down and had a, a conversation with the C-suite and said, you know, we have to improve this. It cannot be that the, the majority of our representation is at administrative levels. Yes, exactly. So, so um, and, and I did feel like we had an impact because we, we actually also worked uh, along with the uh, Port Authority um, Police Hispanic Society and working in partnership with that ERG, we were able to get the first Latino in the history of the Port Authority to be, um, to be uh, appointed as a chief. So that was like a really, really great, great uh, accomplishment. Diversity, equity, inclusion is, is working at a snail's pace. If it wasn't for the Black Lives Matter movement, I, I don't think our numbers would be changing as much as they have in, in, in 2020. Companies ha have had to face the music with what's been going on uh, in society because uh, you know this hoping and praying that things are gonna get better is not, is not working. If you want companies, they want our purchasing power, but yet they're not putting us in leadership roles in C-suite positions or management positions. They don't really know who we are. You know, so I, it's so important that we do that, that we support these businesses, um, that we power other Latinas, and that is going to open the gateways, you know, for us to grow and to receive the credibility and the equal pay that we deserve. Absolutely. And, and to, be, to be quite frank, what, at the end of the day, what matters is shareholder value. That's, that's the bottom line. That's what matters. Now, if we use our disposable income as a quote Latina mob, like if let's just say the whole United States had a campaign, we're going to surge and reward companies that exemplify best in class leadership in diversity, equity, inclusion. And that, those are the companies we're going to buy from. What's going to happen to that company's shareholder value? It's going to skyrocket. When that happens, what happens with the competition? They scramble. They scramble to say, what do we have to do better to make sure that we don't lose shareholder value and that we remain competitive? So it's really, it's really a story about Latinas and women self-empowering with their disposable income, which continues to grow. It's a very good time. Yes. Yes. Now with all of that you do, because you do a lot and it's all work that it's just amazing. And, you know, empowering women, empowering multicultural women, you are also trying to balance your family. Uh, your husband, you have two teenage kids about to head off to college and you have three dogs. How do you manage family responsibilities and maintaining a high demanding consulting business and a nonprofit organization? I think probably many of your listeners here 
know that it's exhausting because we are all, we all have so much more put on our plates um, than we should. Uh, and especially as Latinas, we have so much more put on our plates. I am blessed with a, a family that's supportive. Um, I've always felt like I wanted to show my children that, you know, a mom who's working is it's 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 important. While I am at home and I'm doing my consulting from home, I'm not in a traditional nine to five job like I was before. Uh, I still felt it very important for them to see me um, working uh, towards service, volunteering, um, but also showing them that I I can do it all. I I don't have to. It's my choice. They, they need yes. to know that it's my choice. I have a husband who's extremely supportive. Um, I have a family that's extremely supportive, but, but I, I would have to say, I don't think I'd be able to do all that I'm doing here. Um, if I was working in a nine to five traditional job, there's no way. And so for listeners out there, they should not feel like any kind of guilt, like, oh, you know, the grass is always greener on the other side, basically, is what I'm saying. Like, when you hear about women doing great things over there, you say, oh, I wish I could be doing that. But we, 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 we have to sort of pick and choose. And, and the grass is really greener right here under our own feet. And we have to recognize that and embrace that. And so there are times that I, myself, I have self-doubt. Like, I'm getting all these wonderful things done. Um, I am reaching my goals. Uh, but there are always times where I start to say, you know, I see, you know, one friend who's progressing in one direction or getting an amazing promotion or, um, you know, is working for a company that maybe uh, just just went public. You know, there's there's like all kinds of things like that around us because we're in a very competitive environment where there are a lot of doers. Um, so so back to the to the basics of like the grass is always greener on the other side. I think we, we really do have to embrace what we're doing in the moment because um, we can't do it all. And it's, it's more important to do what we're doing and do it well and not, and not try to get you know, spread too thin, which I've learned my lesson over the last 20 years. It's, it's, a, it's a lesson in progress as well. Well, I think um, a lot of people say, oh, you know, I would try to do it all. I think we can try to do it all, but not at the same time. Exactly. Exactly. There are times where, you know, I, my daughter suffers from migraines. Um, you know, I never would know if one given morning she was not going to feel well. I, I needed to drop everything and be there for her. Um, you know, and then and then obviously there's school functions and obviously with COVID um, that completely threw a monkey wrench into so many people's lives. Um, and we all have had to learn how to pivot. Um, and, and, and figure out, you know, how, how we could continue reaching our goals. Um, but it's not, it's not easy. I, I will not lie. I mean, and, and I know you realize this. I know everyone listening on this, on this call realizes it. Um, whether you're an at-home mom or you're working in business, we all have responsibilities and, uh, managing those responsibilities and, and, and taking care of others or volunteering to help others. We have to learn how to uh, work smarter, not harder. Absolutely. 
there's a lot of working harder that's happened for a long time for generation upon generation. And I think that's, that's also what we've been trying to teach women through Latina surge is, you know, how to negotiate for, for yourself, not just for equal pay, not just for, you know, the next job promotion, but how do you, how do you navigate and how do you, how do you prepare yourself? How do you negotiate even with your own family when you're, you're trying to reach your professional goal, but your family keeps you kind of connected and, and thinking like you have to put your family first always. Um, how are you going to, to progress professionally? The, like you said before, um, everything's timing. So you have to figure out how to navigate the time to devote to your professional career, but also to your family and not necessarily feel like you know, you have to do both well all the time. Exactly, exactly. Well, Lisa, thank you for joining us today and for providing our listeners with your professional advice on how to advance in your career as a multicultural woman. Thank you so much for this opportunity, Minerva. This was a pleasure talking with you. And uh, I really look forward to listening to other episodes of yours because I, I just know they're, they're going to be phenomenal. Thank you. Thank you so much. To learn more about Latina Surge, please visit their website at latinasurge.org. Again, that's latinasurge.org. And please do not forget to write us a review from your favorite podcast platforms. I'm your host, Minerva Salas, and until our next show.